This morning we're continuing in Genesis chapter 3. Turn there. We'll be picking up at verse 7. Hear the word of our God. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the woman and his, sorry, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the earth. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, in our pride and our foolishness, sometimes your word offends. It offends our pride by revealing who we are. Sometimes it offends our sensibilities. Let us not stand above your word as though we judge it, but help us to stand under your word that it might do its work in us. Be gracious to us. Soften our hearts that the seed of your word might settle deep and produce the fruit of faith, 
hope, and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably one of those moments in life you wish you would forget, but for some reason it keeps coming back to my mind. I was a child, and like many children, uh, I was sometimes occasionally afraid of dogs. And I remember being at uh, a friend's house kind of who lived behind us, and it was a cold sort of spring day. It was chilly. And uh, another friend and I had knocked on the door to, to see if this friend wanted to come out and play. And when the door opened up, their dog ran out. And this was not a nice dog. It was one of those little ankle biter dogs. So it wasn't fearsome. But still, when you're a kid, you know, the dog's coming at you. He's not happy. And so I backed up, and there was one of those little kiddie pools in the driveway. And I fell back. Ended up wet, in addition to the cold. And so I went home and crying. And my mother asked, what happened? And for the life of me, I don't quite understand why I did what I did. But I said, Dennis pushed me in the pool. (laughs) I guess I was trying to save face, you know. (laughs) Not, I was afraid of the dog and I backed up and I fell into the water. (laughs) Dennis pushed me into the pool. Then my mother did the thing I didn't want her to do and didn't expect her to do. She went to Dennis's house. <laughs> where she found out a very different side of the story. And I was grounded. My shame led to deceit, which led to punishment. That's essentially what we have going on in the text this morning. Adam and Eve's shame leads them to some level of deceit, which means that they get a little more than grounded, but you kind of get the drift. The big idea, though, is that God graciously seeks those that guilt drives away. Context here is we've talked about how God made everything, how God made man last and gave him, made him in his own image and gave him what we call the creation mandate to Fill, subdue, and rule. And then last week we talked about how it started to go wrong, and today we're going to talk a little bit more about how it went wrong. Last week was the deception and the temptation and eventually the sin in the garden, and today we're talking about guilt, shame, and its consequences. I was listening to a song by Mark Hurd on the way here this morning, and the name of the song was They Threw It All Away, and I hadn't heard that CD in a long time. And really what it was about was this, how Adam and Eve had everything, and they threw it all away. So, first part of what we're looking at this morning is that guilt drives us away from the gracious God. We see that Adam and Eve here, their eyes are opened, and they went from experiencing good naked, so to speak, to now experiencing bad naked. They went from being open and have nothing to hide to a state in which they felt helpless and disgraced, bad naked. And because they had this experience of bad naked, they they were ashamed, and what they initially did is they they sought to cover it up, and so they grabbed leaves and stuck them together somehow to make a loincloth for each of them. They were hiding. They were hiding themselves from one another. I mean, really, seriously, who's there? Just Adam and Eve. Why do they have to hide? 
Really? That's like me trying to hide from my wife. It just it doesn't make any kind of sense. I could see me wanting to wear clothes in front of all of you, but in front of my wife? <laughs> but that's what they did. They wanted to hide even from one another. Alienation had begun to creep already into the relationship between the husband and to the wife. And so as a result, we see this reality that takes place in that we wear masks. We have our own little fig leaves that we wear. We're uncomfortable with other people. We're afraid that somehow they'll find out about us. Okay, Not just that we're sinners, but the particular ways in which we sin. Particular ways in which we struggle with obedience. And so we do this little relational dance with one another. And it's, it's sort of like dancing like I dance, which is horribly. Okay, it's it's. I hate to bring up a Seinfeld reference, but Elaine's little kicks, you know, know. horrible dance. We do this horrible dance with one another. You know, what can I reveal? What can I not reveal? We play this game as we go around in circles, hoping the other person doesn't see what I don't want them to see. It's almost like we're hiding this thing behind our back. Don't want them to see the source of our shame, which is connected with our guilt. And I guess I probably ought to distinguish between those things, right? Just in case. Guilt has, is an objective thing overall. It has to do with having broken a law or command. Okay? Shame is, is not so much I've done something wrong, but shame has more the idea that I am wrong. That there's something broken about me which results from the fact that I have broken that law or command. And so we, we have this sense of guilt and condemnation, but we also experience this sense of shame that there's something wrong with me. And there is. <laughs> okay? Psychologists want us to think that there's nothing wrong with us, but really there is something profoundly wrong with us. And so we try to hide. And what happens next is they hear God coming. Now, this little phrase that we have in the Scriptures, uh, the ESV has it as, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's one of those phrases that's really hard to translate. We're not sure if they heard the voice of the Lord on the wind, because spirit and wind is the same word, it's just depending on the context, uh, how you translate it. So did they hear the voice of God on the wind of the day? We're not sure. Some have said, is it the spirit of the day? Meaning that they, they heard God in wrath and anger coming. And it was, so instead of being, Adam, where are you? It's, Adam, where are you? Okay, the, so it's hard to figure out what's really kind of going on. Is God coming in his wrath or is he coming in his grace? I think because of what plays out, Though he is angry, he comes in grace. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Because we see that God is, first of all, seeking Adam. He knows what happened. But he wants to hear it from Adam. Aren't we like that as parents or as a, you know, as supervisors at work? But sometimes we know what happened, but we want to hear the other person say it. We, we want to make sure that they're going to be honest and faithful about what really transpired in that, uh, in the course of those things. You know, my, my mom needed to hear from me that really Dennis didn't push me. That I was just afraid. 
And so he begins to ask these questions. He wants Adam to own up to what happened. But Adam's first response to, where are you, was, well, we heard you, and we were afraid. Why would they be afraid of God? Who has done nothing but be kind and gracious to them, providing everything that they had. Why would... We were naked and ashamed. So God says, as you might think, who told you you were naked? So remember, this is a a whole new experience for them. There's no basis for them in their prior experience to have this idea of of a a bad naked, a, a helplessness, a disgrace. And so, you know, God's legitimate question is, How'd you get there? Because you weren't there before. Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? Okay. Adam thus far has focused on the consequences. He has not focused on his own action. He's not afraid because I ate of the fruit and you said I'd die that day. He's saying, well, I felt naked and afraid because you're coming. So finally, Adam says, I ate of the tree. But notice what he does. He shifts the blame. The woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate it. So he's, he's sort of admitting that he ate it, but he's sort of, he's shifting the responsibility for this action almost like he didn't know it was the fruit and it was the woman's fault. But by the way, he nearly commits blasphemy because he says, it's the woman you gave me. Ultimately, God, it's your fault. If this woman hadn't been here, I never would have eaten the fruit of that tree. We can see why James would have to to say in the first chapter of his letter, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So it really does no good for us to say, it's your fault, God. You made me this way. It It doesn't wash with the whole of Scripture. So he, he, he kind of sort of admits it, but he, he, blame, he shifts the blame over to Eve and to God. And so what does God say? What have you done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me. She, like Adam, Fails to accept the full responsibility for her actions, but says, it's the serpent. Now, God never talks to the serpent in terms of fine, rooting out what happened. Okay? But it's interesting. We'll, we'll kind of note this later on, I guess. But when God comes, who is the first one he calls? Adam. That is going to be incredibly significant. We'll look at it. Next week, and I think the week after as well, in different contexts. But he looks for Adam. Okay? 
here's the, here's the reality that we need to sort of face is that apart from the good news of Jesus Christ, apart from the gospel, guilt will lead us to blame others instead of owning up to what we have done. It is not something that is particular to them. Okay, It really happened this way, as it says here in Genesis chapter 3, but this is what we do too. They're not the only ones who have done this. None of us can go, I'm glad I'm not like that Adam dude. This is how we, apart from Jesus Christ, deal with our guilt. It's someone else's fault. It's my mom and my dad because of the family I was raised in. It's their fault. It's my boss's fault. If he wasn't so stingy and cheap, I wouldn't have to embezzle. We come up with multitudes of reasons to avoid the responsibility for our own actions. We shift blame. That is part of what we do. Do we live? Do we who have heard the gospel, do we who say we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we live as if Jesus hasn't suffered in our stead? Are we still refusing to own up at times to our own guilt? I fear it's often the case. We're not living in light of that, but we tend to blame other people for what we have done. And so we see here that sin brings guilt, and it is guilt that keeps us from the very one we need to help us. Instead of running to God, Adam and Eve ran from God. That's significant. Not only that, but secondly, guilt brings great misery into our lives. Verses 14 through 19, God, who has been sort of the interrogator, now turns into the judge. He switches his hat, so to speak. As the eternal king, he begins to mete out just penalties for breaking the covenant that he had made with them. And we come across this idea that we find throughout Scripture, which is called Talonic justice. Talonic justice is actually... Pretty easy. Sometimes it's just that whole idea of an eye for an eye, appropriate justice. But often it has this idea also of poetic justice, suitable justice. The guy gets the right thing, you know. But there's also sometimes an element of mocking to this justice. And what we find as God lays it out is that it's appropriate, it's poetic, and there's an, there's an element of mocking, particularly to the serpent, that takes place. But what happens is he doesn't go, Adam, Eve, serpent. He goes, serpent, Eve, Adam. He goes in reverse order this time. He's shifted. He's going from the bottom of the pole to the top of the pole. Okay? What, what is striking here is that all of these things are marked by hostility or enmity, alienation. This hostility has entered creation, and it's about to affect every relationship horizontally. And so we see that there is hostility between the serpent and Eve, and it goes both ways. It's not just the serpent doesn't like Eve, but Eve's pretty good with the serpent. They both don't like each other. Not only that, but we see that animosity enters into the relationship between Eve and Adam. Men and women. And it cuts both ways. We see as well that, that humanity and creation are now sort of at odds with each other. 
almost like a, a personification of creation takes place. There's hostility and enmity there. But behind the scenes is the reality that not only is there this horizontal hostility that takes place, but ultimately there's a vertical hostility that takes place between humanity and God. And God has also subjected the creation to futility. So that's what's going on here. Hostility has shattered shalom. It's gone. Sin has come and left in its place, instead of shalom, this hostility, this brokenness, this animosity. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. It was funny when I was at the rescue mission in Orlando one day and I I made the mistake of declaring that all of us at one point were God's enemies and I had some guy try to correct me and say, I've never been God's enemy. I said, well, according to Scripture, you have. <laughs> Colossians 1.21 Our evil behavior makes us enemies of God. That's all that we see going on. Paul's just looking right back at Genesis 3. This is where it all starts. This is the fountain from which it comes. So let's look at sort of the Talonic justice that gets laid out here. The hostility that gets laid out. Let's start with the rebellious servant, just as God did. The serpent sought to bring humanity low. Humanity, the apex of creation, he sought to bring low because it was made in the image of God. And what happens is he himself, the serpent, becomes the lowest creature. He will eat dust all the days of his life. He aspired to something great and he is brought low. Not only that, but we see that this serpent hated and harmed humanity, and as a result, now this conflict with humanity exists, and eventually the seed of the woman will crush or bruise the head of the serpent. He started the fight. They're going to end the fight. But the serpent be given a given a fatal blow. This week. I pulled into the church parking lot, you know, and I saw my first snake in Arizona. I've seen snakes other places, trust me. But this is my first Arizona snake, and it was just a bull snake. And some of you may have seen pictures of it, a picture of it on um, Facebook, but, you know, it's like one of those Bigfoot pictures, it's really bad quality from my phone, you know, trying to get the picture. So you may not even see the snake in the picture, I don't know. But there I am, and you know, I'm like intrigued by the snake, and yet leery of the snake. Even though I know this is not a viper, it's not going to hurt me, this thing is moving away from me, it's, as, it's afraid of me, it, it doesn't want to deal with me. But there's still this fear of the snake. See, I don't get people who like snakes. <laughs> they haven't heard Genesis 3. We've got a friend in, in Winter Haven who has snakes. Well, I don't know what goes on in her head. Okay. But that, that for me, I, is sort of this mini picture. This is, I understand why I'm sort of intrigued by the snake and yet afraid of the snake. Genesis 3. 
There's animosity there that exists between us and them. Okay? God then moves to the woman, the rebellious woman. Just as he dealt with the rebellious snake, serpent, he now deals with the rebellious woman. And she sought life, for she thought, from this fruit. And so what happens is now, you want life? You're going to give birth. You're going to give life. But that process now is going to be painful. You sought it the easy way, but now it's going to be immensely Painful, the idea of multiplying pains. And so, you know, glad I'm not a woman. There's pain before you conceive. There's pain after you conceive. There is pain when you give birth. And for both men and women, there is pain after you give birth. Child rearing is tough. Yeah, cover, cover their ears, honey. Um, <laughs> But it's difficult. Something that was meant to be a great thing has now had frustration brought into it because of the actions of man and woman. Not only that, but she sought control. That's the idea behind desire there. It's not, you know, Adam's, I mean, Eve's not going, Adam is so hot. That's not the idea. It's not that kind of desire. That she has here. We see this chapter 4, verse 7. Okay? Why don't we just go there for a moment? If, and, you know, the context here is that Cain is mad at his brother, and God is confronting Cain. And he says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so we see the two words there. The word for desire and the word for rule or domination. Same sentence. Same context. Just as sin wanted to master Cain, Eve, in that event in the garden, sought to master Adam. The roles got flipped. Okay? And now, part of the curse, the penalty, is that just as Cain was supposed to master sin, to rule over sin, now men, in a corrupted way, rule over women. It's part of the curse. I think of the, the ring of power in the Lord of the Rings as an illustration of sort of this thing. You know, they, they all thought that they, I can't even get it off, that they could rule the ring. Okay? But the ring ruled them. Smeagol turns into Gollum because of the corrupting power of the ring. He thought he could control the ring. And it turned him into a twisted, bitter creature that wanted only the ring. Even Frodo struggles with destroying the ring because it has a hold in his heart. We think we can master it, but it masters us. 
That's part of what's going on here. The, the relational problems between men and women. A struggle for control. God then moves on to the rebellious man. And says here that he obeyed or listened to his wife. And now for some of us that might go, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? The Hebrew word for obey is the same word as the Hebrew word for listen. Because all commands were spoken. It's just like our kids. Are you listening to me? What are we really saying? Why are you disobeying me? Same thing here. Instead of heeding the voice of God and the command that was given, he, vo- he, he heeded the voice of his wife and obeyed her instead of God. And so God says, because you listened or obeyed her, basically, this is the flip side of that, she's going to seek to control you. What was meant to be a great thing, marriage, now becomes a a stage for ongoing conflict. A couple weeks we'll get to the redemption of marriage by the gospel. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But apart from Christ, you kind of wonder how anyone makes it, don't you? Because of this struggle that goes on. And what often happens is that someone who needs to be in control finds the person who needs to not be in control, who wants to abdicate all responsibility. Is that often, that's often what happens. But that's part of the curse. Not only that, but God says, because you ate the fruit I told you not to eat, what happens is when you eat fruit the rest of your life, it's only going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're going to try and raise all kinds of nice, tasty things, and a lot of what you're going to raise is actually thorns and thistles. And so we see that in addition to the hostility that is here, we also see the frustration of our calling, of the creation mandate. Now it becomes very difficult to fill the earth. Now it becomes very difficult to subdue the earth, and therefore becomes almost impossible for us to rule the earth. And so things like the oil spill happen. Because the, the world does not yield to our hand. But it fights us back. And so the world no longer works right. Sin has brought these miserable consequences. It's not just guilt, but it also brings misery into our lives. So as if guilt and shame weren't bad enough, God connects misery to sin. But there's good news. Okay? The story doesn't end here. Moses keeps writing because God keeps acting. God provides guilt, uh, sorry, grace to cover guilt. Even though God brought justice to all parties, he is going to bring grace to some of them. Okay? There's no grace for the serpent. That's out of here. In fact, what we see is that the promised seed of a woman will prevail, destroying Satan and his work. So there in 3.15, we see this early promise of the gospel. It's kind of 
We're not really sure exactly, you know, unless we read the rest of the Bible, what it really means. But there is this initial promise that is given that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And it's not until Christ comes and destroys the work of the evil one that we really understand what God meant. But it does become revealed progressively throughout the scripture. Hebrews 2.14 makes it perfectly clear, I think, to us. Um, yeah, and I didn't put that in my notes. Okay, Hebrews 2. I said 14? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear, through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And so Jesus comes in humanity that he might die in order that he might destroy death and destroy the work of the one who holds the power of death, the evil one, Satan, the devil. The fulfillment of the promise that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. The promised seed did prevail. Jesus conquered over all of God's enemies on the cross, as it says in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so, D-Day. How did the European theater get won? D-Day. Were there still battles after that? Yeah. But there was no way in the world Germany could recover. And so in the same way, Christ has triumphed. D-Day has occurred in His death and resurrection. And until the final day when He returns, there's going to be some skirmishes, but the battle is done. There's no way the evil one can bounce back and prevail. Christ prevails. And so I tell you, brothers and sisters, there is one day that the enemy will frighten us no more. Today you might be frightened, but there is coming a day when you will no longer be afraid of him anymore because you will see him cast into the fires. There is coming a day when he will tempt you no more. There is coming a day when he will accuse you no more. Man, won't that be an awesome day? When you're not going to hear that little voice in your head bringing up every single sin you committed that day? There's coming a day when it's not going to happen anymore. Because the work of Christ will be brought to an end. Meaning, everything He meant to accomplish will be fulfilled. So part of that is that the promised seed of the woman prevails, but also God graciously provides clothing to cover nakedness. And I, I thought, of, I can't remember which hymn it is right now, but that, that phrase, naked I come to thee for dress. Is that Augustus Top Lady? Okay, I thought so. It's vaguely in there somewhere. But what happens here is God takes away the fig leaves. Because they're pretty lousy and they don't do a, whole, a very good job, but what does he do? He gives them animal skins. Something that's going to be a whole lot better. It's going to last a whole lot longer. You know, a, a stiff breeze and a couple of shots of rain and those fig leaves are done, man. 
and they don't hold up well when you're like bending over and trying to move the earth. But a skin? That will hang around. That will keep them warm at night. That will accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. So God graciously gives them covering. He covers the nakedness. He covers their shame. This is pointing to what will ultimately happen to us in Christ Jesus. Those, it says in Galatians 3.27, who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Our shame is covered by Christ. Though they're sent out of the garden, though there's a consequence, still their shame has been covered and Christ covers ours. That's good news. But there's more. Not only has the promised seed of the woman prevailed, not only has he covered our nakedness with clothing, but we see this picture of God's gracious substitute providing secure pardon. Uh, You might be going, how did they get the skins? An animal had to die. And so we see that though they still remain under the death penalty, that there is a substitute. Instead of them dying that day, animals died in their place. Substitute. Blood was shed to cover their nakedness by God's command, by God Himself. Their clothing required blood and it was paid. And so these animals foreshadow the blood of the Lamb of God who would die for our sins. To secure our pardon. To ultimately remove the curse completely. And so Jesus pardons our sins and covers our shame until Satan's final day. So, we, we're, you know, Romans 8.1, if anyone was in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Okay? We're, we're no longer condemned, but we still see that we suffer under the, the, the consequences of sin. We still endure misery. I've got a friend in prison. He's no longer condemned for his crime. But his ex-wife is still dead. And he's still in prison. That's the horrible thing about sin. That though God may pardon us and forgive us, sometimes we bear horrible consequences until Jesus returns. We sometimes delude ourselves into thinking only about the pardon part. Well, you know, Jesus will forgive me. Yes. But now you're inviting all of this into your life. All of these consequences may come upon you like a storm upon an island. We need to remember that when we're tempted. That it's not just the guilt, but it's also the misery. When I was doing my pastoral internship in Lakeland, Florida, I was shocked 
one one day, uh, the, the pastor and I were talking, and and um, he was mentioning someone who was being disobedient, and and he said, "I'm going to pray that God makes them miserable." And I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> and then I understood. They would never leave their sin as long as it was delightful to them. It was not until they experienced the bitterness of their sin that they would flee from it. And so he was asking God to quickly make it bitter to them that they would quickly leave it. The misery is meant to drive us to repentance. The misery is, in a sense, a severe mercy to our souls, lest we linger at sin far too long. If there was no misery to it, we'd never leave it. We would have no desire to to look to Christ until we face the bitterness of it. And so we come to places like Galatians 6-7, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will experience consequences for your sin. So I, I, I like that quote I've got there from Dave Harvey, whose book on marriage I strongly, strongly recommend. Um, if any of you are single and I'm your pastor, when you come to get married, you will get that book. And uh, we will work through that book. By the gospel we understand that though saved, we remain sinners. We're justified sinners, but we're sinners. Okay, is what he's saying. And it is through the gospel we receive power to resist sin. And so he says, accurately understanding and applying the gospel is the Christian life. Do you want to know what it means to be a Christian? It's growing in your understanding of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, and unpacking it and applying it to your life. That's the Christian life. And so part of what this says to us, this text says to us, is that though I feel guilty, there is a place to go for the guilt to be removed. Though I feel a new sense of shame, there is one who clothes me that I need not feel it. And the misery I experience is meant to drive me to him, not from him. Every part of my being wants to run from God. But God has run after me faster. It's good news. Very good news. So, in light of that, we see that Adam and Eve's disobedience brought both the wrath of God and the mercy of God. They experienced suitable punishments that continue into the present time. But they also experienced a foretaste of what the Redeemer would bring. And so even though we wrestle with guilt and shame, there is hope in the midst of it because Christ has come and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, as people, I know um, we are prone to wander. 
And when we do, we feel that strong sense of guilt that wants us to wander even farther. That vainly believes that somehow we can make things right when we can't. And so we need to hear these words of grace. Many of us have too many words of condemnation in our heads. And so may the cross shout louder and stronger of your mercy. That our downcast hearts would be lifted up. And for those unfamiliar with condemnation, those who don't yet grasp their need for grace, I ask that they may hear those words clearly. That they may see that they are indeed naked, disgraced, and needy, and that it would drive them to the Savior. And we ask these things in the name of the true substitute for sinners, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.